Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Has Donald Trump dug Republicans into a hole? Not necessarily. Fred Barnes thinks that the GOP is poised for some success. We'll ask him how. Then we're going to talk with Thomas Jocelyn about how the U.S. can win or at least not lose the 9-11 wars. John McCormick is coming by to unravel the conspiracy theories surrounding the murder of Democratic aide Seth Rich. All that coming up on The Confab. The Confab, by the way, is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club. They don't mess around with 14-blade razors and magic lubrication strips or other silly shave technology. As a Confab listener, you can enjoy your first month with the Dollar Shave Club for just $5, with free shipping included. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com slash confab. Don't forget the slash confab part. And now we get the confab going in fine form with Mr. Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly Standard mm-hmm. and, and the soul of optimism. <laughs> you, it, you've inspired me. You've touched mm-hmm. me with your optimistic vision, Fred, of mm-hmm. how the Republicans could actually be in a position to do well in this coming year. You know, after I wrote the piece on it, I realized that I'm more optimistic than the Republicans <laughs> themselves are. Really, I am. And, and uh, the idea, of course, is that they could uh, win another seat on the Supreme Court if there's a vacancy, as there likely will be, and, you know, get tax reform passed, maybe even re- uh, repeal and replace of Obamacare you know, all in at least the first two years of Trump's uh, presidential term, and then when you put all those things together, it's been a it's been a triumphant year for them. Well, but it would be a triumphant year. I mean, let's let's start with the one that is perhaps least likely mm-hmm. of those, which would be the repeal and replace of of Obamacare, which yeah. does seem to be. A real sticking point for Republicans. Where it, where does it stand? It, it what is. are the prospects? Well, I you know I was in a meeting with, uh, or I was invited to a meeting to chat with some Republican senators the other day, and uh, one of them said, I forget which one it was, you know that that Republicans were enthusiastically in favor of repealing Obamacare, but they didn't have a clue about how they wanted to replace it uh, because because then it becomes repealing it was a Republican issue, but replacing it, that's what Democrats do. Health care is a Democratic issue and uh, not a Republican one. And so they're having trouble coming up with uh, a replacement. And and I think they're even having trouble with the concept of repeal at this point, because now an entitlement having been in place for so many years, Mm -hmm. inevitably you're in the position in going back to the status quo ante Mm -hmm. of being that being portrayed as taking away people's health care. Yeah, it is. And uh, and of course, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, when they look at the Republican plan that would get rid of the personal mandate, in other words, it says people have to buy insurance. Uh, they say what, that all these people who decide 
who they think would decide not to buy insurance under that new situation, that those people have lost their insurance. And, you know, that's just the beginning of the problems for Republicans in finding a replacement. They know they want, in the broadest terms, they want a free market health care system. But when you get down to any particulars below that, they're uh, they're in trouble. Now, I, w- I want to go back to something you said, though, which mm-hmm. is, are you suggesting that the nonpartisan, bipartisan Congressional Budget Office <laughs> might actually frame its rulings on the costs and, and effects of, of legislation in ways that were favorable to the Democrats? Uh, sometimes they do. I think they're more favorable to uh, uh, somebody who knows nothing about health care or taxes or anything. Their estimates are are frequently way off. People have cataloged this over the years, and you know they don't have to. They don't have to say, as they did just the other day. Well, under this new Republican plan, there will be twenty three million fewer uh, people buying health care, health insurance. Well, you know they'll be off. I mean, they could be off by ten million either way, right, and, I like and they don't have to say that. They can say, well, you know, somewhere between twenty million and twenty-five million, or something like that. But they they try to pinpoint. At least they didn't say twenty-three million eight hundred and seventy-five thousand yeah. and twelve. I give them credit for that. <laughs> yes. All right. So where do things stand on tax reform? Ah, now there's a Republican issue. Uh, Eric, you know, Republicans love taxes. They love to talk about taxes. They know how to uh, market tax cuts. It's not that hard. Most people do like tax cuts, but they do a good job on it on top of that. And the one flaw in the whole strategy of Republicans and Trump is to do health care first, which is their which is a a roadblock to uh, doing uh, tax reform uh, because they think it ought to be second. And there are reasons for doing that. But uh, politically, it's a dumb way to approach it. But but tax reform uh, is a lot easier to pass. Uh, They won't get any Democratic votes. But Republicans, you know, what's happened is the White House, uh, the leaders of the House and the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee, they've all agreed that they want to have one bill. Now, these com- these hearings will go on in the next few months uh, in the Senate Finance Committee and in the Ways and Means Committee. But at some point, they'll say, stop. We've already decided what it is. It's this one. Here's the bill. And uh, and that's what they're aiming to do. And and if they achieve that, I think it'll be uh, it, it will be uh, paving the road to success. Now, with repeal and replace, we've seen fissures opening up on the Republicans, mm-hmm. on the conservatives, the more moderates. Uh, are there like is there likely to be more unity for Republicans when it comes to tax reform, mm-hmm. so that the leadership can present a bill and be able to get consensus on that? Yes, uh, it is. Uh, they can do that. They have one thing that is particularly uh, a problem, uh, and it's called the border adjustment tax. Basically, it's a a tax on imports uh, designed to raise uh, revenue and also uh, to create uh, create a more international uh, level playing field because there's so many other countries that have value-added taxes that Americans sending uh, goods overseas have to pay and there are other uh, similar things. The problem is that, one, it's Republican tax reform, and two, the business community is split on this. 
And that means that they're going to have to get rid of this idea of a border adjustment tax. It's because it, it alienates too many people that are important to the Republican coalition and to passage. And, and I would be a little dubious of the introduction of anything that quacks like a VAT tax. Yeah. Because once you get it does. a little bit of a VAT tax mm-hmm. in to be mm-hmm. just dealing with imports, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you start seeing VAT taxes yeah. creep in on all the – VAT taxes it, are – the f- politician's favorite because the tax is hidden mm-hmm. inside the price of the product. It's a lot easier to raise than an income tax. Yeah, that's absolutely. for sure. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the third potential success mm-hmm. for Republicans in the age of Trump. This is this third one is something that would really rely on Trump's judgment, which is always mm-hmm. a scary thing, mm-hmm. but on a matter that he's already proven himself capable of better judgment Mm -hmm. than he has Mm -hmm. and some other things, Mm -hmm. which is to say a Supreme Court pick. Mm -hmm. You think there's the possibility of another Supreme Court pick within the next year and a half? Um, Well, I think in the next year, in the next uh, couple of months, actually, uh, if uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy retires. Now, I've talked to any number of people who have gotten hints from him uh, that he may retire. He is 80 years old. Uh, and he's a Republican, but he's not really a conservative. He he's sort of a centrist. He's conservative on some issues, liberal on on many social issues, abortion and gay rights and things like that. Uh, but he's, uh, I mean, <laughs> so he's the he's the main yeah. swing mm-hmm. voter. Yeah. And if mm-hmm. you could replace the swing vote with a, a conservative, conservative vote, that would be a significant change. You'd in have Supreme five Court. to four conservative majority. Uh, you'd have a conservative court. That could last uh, for years to come. I don't know how many. It is what. Here's the thing that's amazing about it. This potentially happening under Donald Trump. This is something that President Eisenhower, President Nixon, both Bushes, President Reagan, uh, all dreamed about creating a conservative Supreme Court, and they all failed. And here this thing is dropped into Donald Trump's lap, and he's put himself, I'll have to say, he's put himself in a, a good position because he decided he'd ask for a list of good conservative justices, and he handed it over. That was during the campaign. During the campaign. They handed it over to Leonard Leo, the head of the Federalist Society, who came up with this spectacular list of conservative judges and jurors. I know some of them. Uh, it couldn't be better. So it's put Trump in a position uh, for them, or women, uh, uh, by the way, no matter, you could put their names in a hat and Trump could pick out a name and it would be good. Because now they may not be great witnesses before the Senate Judiciary Committee, but they, but they all have have very strong conservative judicial records. Right. The, the performance that Neil Gorsuch put in mm-hmm. in his hearings was mm-hmm. something that is extraordinary even for a smart jurist. Indeed. I mean, it was just I, – I covered the hearings with Robert Bork uh, back in the, the late 1980s. Bork was a wonderful man, a brilliant jurist, and an unbelievably bad witness before the Senate <laughs> Judiciary Committee. He thought he, – he thought he was there to argue points <laughs> and not to duck. <laughs> <laughs> and he would – you know, he would generate arguments and uh, just uh, – and the Democrats killed him. You know, they – they uh, they were unfair. <laughs> they borked him, but uh, he he created the atmosphere for that to happen. Now, speaking of atmospheres, you suggest in your piece that um, that the single thing that has been 
perhaps most dangerous in the long haul to Trump, which is the naming of a special counsel mm-hmm. to investigate the mm-hmm. Russia allegations, that this has provided the the breathing room for Republicans mm. that may make it possible for them to to make progress on these issues. Indeed, you know, uh, uh, Eric, there's a a myth around around town, and I've lived here all my life, so <laughs> I call this I'd call Washington around town, uh, and that is that oh, if the president's in trouble, then his allies on Capitol Hill they can't go in, they can't do anything, because the president's troubles dominate everything. Well, it doesn't work that way. That is purely a myth, and particularly among these Republicans who are, who uh, I would say. Are are much more independent of President Trump than they seem like, because they don't have a a long term commitment to him uh, as a Republican or as a conservative or something like that. The way so many of them did to Reagan, so many of them did to both of the Bushes, uh, it, it, it's just not there. And they've campaigned on all these issues. They've uh, particularly tax reform. They know a lot about it, a lot more than Trump does, and they can do this on his own on their own and with. The special counsel being named that really, you know, doused this anti-Trump fever may come back. But I think for a while now we do have exactly what what you suggested, breathing room for Republicans to really move ahead on these issues without uh, interference by Trump or without any uh, uh, harmful aura in Washington that might hurt them. Well, I'll tell you, in in a a town that is uh, full of people who are either angry or depressed – You've been a a source of cheerful, good spirits, Fred. So thank you for joining us on the Confab. (laughs) I I can't promise such optimism and high spirits every week. Well, we'll see what we can get. All right. Thanks, Fred. And now joining us by Skype from New York, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Thomas Jocelyn. Tom, how are you? Good. How are you, Eric? Fine, thanks. You've got a cover story in the magazine this week talking about the state of play with with terrorists and the 9-11 wars. I think we should start by just asking, you know, the terrible attack this week in Manchester, England. What does that tell us about the state of terrorism generally? Well, what I think uh, it tells us is that, you know, there's this persistent threat. It underscores that. And the fact of the matter is that several European nations uh, have thwarted uh, numerous attacks over the last few years. And it was only a matter of time until one that was a little more devastating uh, got off. And that's basically how I viewed Manchester was to be expected, unfortunately. Um, But I think what is missing oftentimes in sort of the discussions of, of these events is the cat and mouse game that's going on between security services and uh, the terrorists. So one of the things I say in the cover story this week is that, and you really have to let this sink in, thousands of potential terrorists are soaking up counterterrorism resources, intelligence resources throughout the West. And there's no telling how many have actually had, uh, were going to go forward with an attack sort of like Manchester or something similar to it. But we know that a great number of them certainly would have. Um, And so the death toll could be even higher throughout the West. And I raise this uh, point for a lot of reasons, but one of them is if you you go back to the Obama years, I I always think that President Obama had a 10-year when it came to to this issue. And he liked to tell his staff that the number of Americans killed in uh, terrorist attacks was less than in car accidents or those who slip in bathtubs and that sort of thing. 
Um, well, you know, the first thing is that automotive manufacturers aren't fighting for control of nations overseas. And um, the bottom line is that these counterterrorism officials are not preoccupied with bathtub suppliers. What they're doing is they're trying to stop the death toll from being much higher. And so that's the, the main logical flaw uh, in, in Obama's argument. And now we have to see going forward, is there a way to sort of offensively roll back the jihadists such that we're not constantly playing defense? That's the real question. One of the things you talk about, though, is the way in which Donald Trump's strategy, which is still being put together, but it's what we know of it, sounds an awful lot like the strategy that was already in place for President Obama. What are the similarities? What are the differences? Well, you know, we, we don't know uh, how the, the Trump administration is going to come out on these issues. They have a lot of uh, thorny issues to confront here in the coming weeks, including Afghanistan. But the key thing that President Obama pushed during his years was the sort of use of proxies or partners on the ground in all these different theaters. And I say in the piece, you know, there's no way that American forces can be the lead ground forces in all these different wars, nor should they be. And of course, deploying more American ground troops means necessarily you're going to take on most likely more casualties. And that's something that should weigh on any president and any sort of commentator like myself on these matters. But the bottom line is that when you look at this sort of partner first sort of strategy that Obama left in place, there are noticeable downsides to it. Um, you know, the, the war against ISIS in Iraq and Syria, for example, yes, they've lost a lot of territory, but they're still prolific. They still remain in the game. They're still able to orchestrate attacks in the West. And you can see, um, you know, even in the last couple of weeks, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence came out and said that they think that after the Islamic State loses, for example, Raqqa and the rest of Mosul, that even then they'll have enough resources to maintain a prolific insurgency. That means they're not going to die anytime soon. This is not something that could be considered a true defeat in history of warfare. And the same goes for al-Qaeda and the Taliban uh, and, and sort of related groups. What we've seen is that they're not being defeated either. And Afghanistan is really the biggest crisis, I think, that the Trump administration is going to face in the next week or two. Because there's a real um, gamble here that if the Trump administration decides to draw down further or not commit more to Afghanistan, you could see a replay of what happened in Iraq uh, with the rise of ISIS after the withdrawal in 2011. You could see a replay of that in South Asia. And there are, there are reasons to think that in some ways it could be even worse, um, because in the long run, you have to remember that we have Pakistan, which is a nuclear armed state that's teeming with jihadists is on the southern border of Afghanistan and sponsored jihadism for years. Nobody really wants to think through what the implications would be of an American loss in Afghanistan, whether perceived or real, uh, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan and elsewhere. So you talk about jihadists uh, as opposed to saying al-Qaeda or ISIS. Does it matter which group the jihadists ascribe to? Oh, no. I use jihadists as a shorthand way to sort of encapsulate all of ISIS, al-Qaeda, the Taliban. But in the piece, I get very much into which organization is, is doing what. And that becomes very, very important. I mean, one of the big things that the Obama administration left behind for the Trump administration was this sort of um, misunderstanding of al-Qaeda. You know, uh, President Obama was obsessed with saying that al-Qaeda's core had been de decimated or was a shadow of its former self or was on the run. And I think the story of al-Qaeda is very different. Al-Qaeda, first of all, was not this insular core that was waiting to be droned to death in Pakistan as uh, Obama conceived of it. In fact, it was a geographically diverse sort of organization. It's a cohesive organization to this day. And al-Qaeda has grown substantially, both in Afghanistan and elsewhere, 
under Obama's watch, especially in Syria, but also Yemen and North and West Africa. And the idea that al-Qaeda is decimated, I think, is absurd if you actually properly define it. And so one of the things the Trump administration now confronts is it inherits all of these misstatements, I would say, from the Obama administration and, quite frankly, this crude ignorance of the enemy. And it needs to correct that if it wants to actually start fighting the war and trying to trying to win it. One of the things you, you write in your piece that I found just to be shocking was that last year in Afghanistan, 11,418 civilians were killed. Now, I take it those were not mostly from collateral damage of, of uh, NATO forces. Right. I mean, they were, they were mainly killed by the Taliban and the Taliban-led insurgency. And, you know, this is one of the one of the issues I think Americans need to confront uh, six, going on 16 years after 9-11 is that we do have Afghan partners, the Afghan people. Yes, it's a, it's a, the country is a horrible mess. The government is ripe with corruption. There are all sorts of problems. The Afghan forces can't fight the jihadis by themselves. But, you know, there are, there are an awful lot of Afghan people who are on our side. And the idea that you're going to callously sort of leave them behind, which I think some people in the Trump administration are advocating, I think uh, basically horrifies me. I mean, when you look at what's happening in Afghanistan, it is directly tied to threats to us. Uh, you know, one of the things that's really not even understood this day, and this is, this is really the most incredible fact to me, is that in October of last year, the Pentagon came out and said that they had to kill a very senior al-Qaeda veteran in Afghanistan. One of the reasons why was that this guy was still planning against the U.S., plotting against the U.S. from Afghan soil 15 years after 9-11. I mean, just think about that. We're a decade and a half out, and we were supposedly going to eliminate the threat to U.S. interests uh, from al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. And in fact, that threat has not been totally eliminated at this point. And that tells you that there's a lot wrong. But, you know, some people look at the war in Afghanistan and say, well, it's time to give up, come home. We can't win it. I don't know at this point what what victory would even look like, to be honest with you, given the state of affairs. But I'm very hesitant to say that we can come home and leave this behind. I think that it would be definitely a victory for all of our worst enemies. And and a defeat for the U.S. And what would defeat look like? And and what would be the impact in other parts of the world? You know, the comparison I draw is to what happened in Iraq uh, in 2011 after the last American boots left the ground. Recall that President Obama even became hesitant about drawing down further in Afghanistan because of the lessons of Iraq in 2011 and because of the the gathering storm in Afghanistan that he was witnessing during his last year as as an elected official in 2016. Um, So even President Obama, who desperately wanted to say that he had ended the war in Afghanistan, even he had to pause and say, you know what, I have to have to stop with the drawdowns of American forces in Afghanistan. That speaks a lot to what actually is happening in the country. And I, 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 one of the things that it sticks out in my mind is that uh, the current National Security Advisor, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, has said in the past that he, he wants Americans to understand more about the enemy. And I, quite frankly, as a nerd who studies this every day, that really speaks to me because I think it's an enemy that's still not very well understood across the West. And so in Afghanistan, for example, there are a lot of people who think that the Taliban can be easily cleaved from al-Qaeda. I would say the evidentiary record at this point is crystal clear that that is a, a complete fallacy. The Taliban advertises its alliance with al-Qaeda to this day. The Al-Qaeda is deeply integrated with the Taliban insurgency in Afghanistan, and a win for the Taliban is a win for al-Qaeda, and it's a win for the worst enemies we've had since 9-11. Well, what would be the key elements of a strategy that might have some chance of success in Afghanistan? 
Well, you know, the U.S. strategy in Afghanistan, unfortunately, has been, uh, I would say, haphazard. It's been, um, you know, President Obama came in and said he was going to surge forces in Afghanistan to try and build up the Afghan government and leave behind a more stable country. Uh, but unfortunately, he had this predetermined deadline of 18 months in mind when he made that decision. And that was driven mainly by domestic politics, not by the reality on the ground. And to this point, we have not built up the Afghan forces to a point where um, they can hold the fight their own. I think if the Bush administration had done more and then the Obama administration had done more, maybe we're looking at a different story today. But why, but why is it why is it, though, that uh, when ISIS gets going, they're able to get fighters in the field who are effective uh, in pretty short order? And after 15, 16 years of trying to stand up an Afghan army, the, the greatest military in the world isn't able to um, get proxies on the ground who are effective? Well, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, one one reason is I think that people don't think that the U.S. is really committed to the fight. Um, if you look at what al-Qaeda is saying right this minute, right now, what they're saying is America's going to flee and that we were right all along and you lost. And they're already saying that the U.S. has lost and, the, and that their victory is coming. And part of the problem, one of the reasons why I criticize, for example, that arbitrary withdrawal date that, that President Obama had when he surged forces in Afghanistan is it telegraphed to the jihadis that we weren't really committed to the fight. And in fact, that's how they reacted to it. That's what they said to the Afghan government. That's what they said to everybody in the area was, look, the U.S. is coming now. They're sending 30,000 or whatever the number is, more troops to Afghanistan, but they'll be leaving, so don't count on them. And that's part of what a war is. It's a battle of wills. But there are other reasons, too. I mean, it's, it's sort of a cobbled-together mess, basically. And this is, goes to the heart of these partner strategies that have been left in place across several countries by the Obama administration. Each one of these wars is a complex, multi-sided affair, and if the U.S. doesn't clearly define its interests and clearly define its role and what leadership looks like, and has not done that in any one of these cases, I would argue, then uh, basically you're not going to, to build up partner uh, forces in the area that can actually do the job. And with the Afghan government, you know, it's, it's easy to say, look, they're a mess and they can't hold the fight on their own, and why are we wasting money on them? But by the same token, they are still the primary force that's fighting the insurgency in Afghanistan. And the idea they're going to cut and run and not try and do something to help them in the long run, I think, is basically uh, just so problematic that it would leave behind a horrible legacy for President Trump. I mean, that's basically what I think has to be kept in mind here. From pre if I were sitting in President Trump's shoes, do I want to be known as the president who lost this war, even though I've been dealt a terrible hand and he says that, that President Trump says that he's inherited a mess? And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but the bottom line is that now it's on his plate and he has to deal with it. Thomas Jocelyn, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defensive Democracies. Thanks so much for joining us on the Confab. Hey, thank you very much, Eric. If we can break away from the issues of international importance for just a moment, this is the part of the Confab where we talk for a few seconds about the Dollar Shave Club. Get a great shave at a great price with razors delivered right to your door. The Dollar Shave Club is the smarter choice. No schlepping to the store where you either get a cheap disposable razor that gives you a cheap shave, or you spend a fortune on razors with gimmicky shaving technology that you don't need. There's a special deal for Confab listeners who join the Dollar Shave Club. You get $15 worth of blades and shave butter for just $5. That's a weighty handle plus four cartridges and a tube of shave butter and free shipping as well. 
It's easy to order online. All you have to do to get this exclusive offer is go to dollarshaveclub.com slash confab. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash confab. We welcome to the Confab Studio Mr. John McCormick, senior writer with the Weekly Standard. John, how are you doing? Doing well. Good. Thanks for making it. So we are looking at the new issue of the Weekly Standard, and you have a story in there talking about how the fantastical story about what happened to Seth Rich got into the mainstream of media and fell out of it as well. Uh, tell us how this got started. Uh, well, Seth Rich, it's a, it's a sad story. He was a, he was a 27-year-old employee of the Democratic National Committee. And um, according to publicly available reports out there, Washington Post, NBC, other places, um, the story is that he was walking home um, on the night, early morning hours from his favorite bar on uh, July 10 of 2016. And he was on the phone with his girlfriend talking about uh, whether or not he should take a new job in New York with the Hillary Clinton campaign. They were on the phone for a couple hours. Uh, the girlfriend reportedly heard some voice in the background. He said he was fine. He hung up abruptly, said he was almost home, said goodnight. And uh, within a minute or so, uh, he was uh, shot. He, uh, when police discovered him uh, using this technology, which detects gunshots based on sound, uh, he was laying down and he had um, you know, gunshot wounds to his back. And they, uh, the first responders thought he was actually going to live. He lived for another uh, 100 minutes or so. He was talkative, apparently. Uh, we still don't know a lot about exactly what he said at the time. There, the, the police haven't cracked this case. And so the fact that it's an unsolved mystery has opened the door for some conspiracy theorists to really jump on it. Um, right. You have somebody in the midst of a campaign that involved all sorts of conspiracy theories and still has conspir- big conspiracy theories going on. Uh, it's, it was rife for conspiracy theory if you had someone who was involved in the campaign killed mysteriously. Yeah. And so Seth Rich was not a very high level staffer, you know, reportedly wouldn't have had any access to um, the DNC emails that were hacked or sent to WikiLeaks. But those some of those emails were released 12 days after he died. So that alone gave Julian Assange, WikiLeaks, Roger Stone, you know, notorious political gadfly, troublemaker, Donald Trump confidant, whatever you want to call him. They began to stoke this conspiracy theory that Seth Rich was somehow killed for his role in the disclosure of the WikiLeaks emails. Um, there's really no evidence for it. The, they sort of dwell on the fact that uh, you know his his possessions weren't stolen. Uh, police have suggested maybe it was a it was a robbery gone bad. You know, the, he, somehow an altercation happened. And, um, you know, they, they shot they shot Seth Rich, the, the robbers did. This is one theory. And they were startled and they ran away before taking anything. Um, but the story really got legs uh, a couple weeks ago now. It was May 15th uh, when an investigator for um, he was hired by an outside source, actually, uh, a guy who was a contributor at Breitbart, a wealthy businessman. And. The investigators uh, signed a contract with the family of Seth Rich saying, I won't talk to the press unless I have your permission. Well, he didn't get that permission, but he went to a local Fox affiliate anyway and talked about how he had a source in the in the FBI who had evidence, certain certain absolute evidence that Seth Rich was, in fact, in contact with uh, WikiLeaks and had sent thousands of emails to WikiLeaks. 
that alone, the story began zipping all around the internet, the Drudge Report, Breitbart News, many other places. Um, and So in that initial claim, he claimed that he himself had a source in the FBI. That he, yes, he, he had his own federal source uh, who had, had this knowledge. Within a day, he had backed off this. He told CNN, oh, actually, I was basing my report on a Fox News reporter's claim that hadn't yet been published. And that there, so, the, so the investigator basically completely retracts what he had said. Right. There is a big difference between saying, I have a source in the FBI to... I heard somebody say that she had a source in the FBI. Exactly. And so you went from having two people saying that they had their own sources to one, and that one report at foxnews.com, um, you know, it was itself pretty flimsy. It was based on one anonymous source, um, and that story was retracted on May 23rd. Uh, furthermore, a number of people close to the family, former, uh, a former federal or a current federal agent, uh, told NBC News that the FBI hasn't been involved. I had the spokesperson for the family of Southridge tell me that the FBI has not had any role whatsoever. You know, I don't know that for a fact myself. That is what um, right, uh, the this... spokesman for the family claimed, that they had no assisting role uh, with local law enforcement in this case. Right. And this, this turns on the question of whether the FBI had Seth Rich's uh, laptop computer. And according to the family, no, the District of Columbia police had his computer uh, not the FBI. Exactly. They they were told that the family's been told. Their spokesman says that uh, the family had the computer examined by the local D.C. police, the Metropolitan Police Department, and they found no evidence whatsoever that Southridge was in contact with WikiLeaks. You know, you can try and make all these arguments, and it, it is good just for the average reader, the average listener, the average citizen to you know for all of us to know like what the exact cases are. But the facts sort of don't get in the way. People who are really committed um, to promoting this conspiracy theory. And the, and the worst offender probably in all this has been Sean Hannity. And, no. uh, and even though he didn't, you know, produce this original report, he, you know, he had this guy, Rod Wheeler, on his show. He let Rod Wheeler spout off all sorts of things. And when Rod Wheeler backtracked, he never went on TV to say that Rod Wheeler had taken all these things back. He never went on air to say that the foxnews.com report was wrong. And so he sort of grasped at all whatever he could grasp onto. Uh, to promote this conspiracy theory that, you know, which is a pretty dark, really dark conspiracy theory, basically that, you know, the major political party, major presidential campaign somehow assassinated an American citizen for, uh, you know, leaking emails. Uh, you know, it's pretty hurtful to the family, too. They talk about, you know, they basically are slandering him as a as a thief, as someone who betrayed his his employer and his colleagues. And um, there's just really no evidence for it other than the circumstantial evidence that, well, he wasn't – his possessions weren't taken. Therefore, it couldn't have been a robbery. Therefore, we must jump to the conclusion that maybe you know, Democratic operatives had this guy killed. John McCormick, senior writer of The Weekly Standard, thanks for setting the record straight on the Seth Rich case. Thank you. That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Join the Confab conversation. Let us know what you want to hear more about. You can email us at podcasts at weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.